It is a Jose Bautista weekend in Toronto. It is a Jose Bautista guest list on Friday. The Fan Morning Show. Uh, Josh Donaldson and John McDonald, former teammates of Jose, on in the 8 a.m. hour. And right now, Jay Happ, who we caught up with yesterday, a former teammate, of course, of Bautista's. Uh, We talk about being a teammate with Bautista. We talk about missing out on that 2015 run, but returning to the Blue Jays the next season. Our conversation with Jay Happ right now. Okay, pleased to be joined now by Jay Happ, former Toronto Blue Jays pitcher and, of course, teammate of Jose Bautista, who's going up into the level of excellence this weekend. Uh, excellence is an important word. It's a strong word. You need to be, you need to excel in order to be on the level of excellence. So what is it that made Jose Bautista excel? Oh, wow. Well, first congrats to him. I mean, well-deserved, but um, you know, I think the biggest thing that stood out for me with Jose uh, was just kind of his dedication to the craft. I mean, he really took it um, as serious as you could. He prepared himself uh, as best he could. So uh, for me, that really p- showed and it, and it paid off and it was impressive to watch over the years. Yeah, the the word that jumps out from talking to former teammates or, you know, we've had a chance to talk to him, even just watching him is intense and he came across that way. You know, what's it like for you as a teammate to interact with him? Like, you know, again, I don't want it to seem like he's some, you know, cage tiger in the locker room or anything, but it's a, you know, it's a long <laughs> season. You guys are in there every day. What was he like just as a uh, as a teammate? I mean, we see that intense side to him. I'm sure that exists, but maybe there's something we don't know about Batista. Yeah, well, you know, he was intense even even through the locker room. But, uh, you know, again, I just think, you know, even some off-seasons, seeing him uh, here and there in the off-seasons, training down there um, in, near the complex and coming in. Um, you know, good teammate. You know, a guy that you want out there, you know, he, you know, he's given, given you what he's got, you know, out there in right field and um, certainly again, the preparation wise and the at bats and a lot of big hits and plays that he's made over his career. So everyone has their reasons for doing what they're doing. Uh, and of course, baseball players have a variety of reasons. Many of them overlap, uh, of course, with money being pretty high up on the list. Uh, legacy, championships, all those things. Uh, I guess I'm asking you to speculate just a little bit, but that intensity is, I wouldn't say unmatched, but maybe a little uncommon that he brought to the ballpark every day into, the, into those training sessions. So what do you think drove him the most? Ooh, it's a good question. I mean, that's hard to tell to get in the psyche of, of every player, but, um, you know, I think looking, looking back at it, he had to have recognized, um, you know, after those couple years, first years with Toronto, I think he probably recognized what he was going to be capable of. And he probably wanted to start creating a legacy and he knew as well as anybody kind of, he was very smart about it as far as maintaining himself and, and keeping that intensity up in that drive um, to kind of keep that edge, to kind of continue that longevity um, of a career. 
Yeah, and it's, you know, it's different for every player. And like you said, you don't want to do too much armchair psychologist, although you can do it better than us because you actually actually do know him there. But, you know, when I when I look at it, it's just a guy who kind of gained his MLB life late in his career, right? It's a guy who who kind of came to fruition at 29, 30 years old. And, yeah, just probably has a different kind of feel for it. Uh, you know, thinking back to your kind of time with the Jays, I mean, you had a couple of massive playoff starts for this team you obviously had tons of big ones in in philly and new york as well but we'll talk about what you did in toronto what's it like pitching in the postseason i mean we all go back and everybody thinks of the bat flip moment and nothing will ever be as crazy as that but what's it like for you kind of locking in and pitching in the postseason again you had a couple of awesome starts for the jays in uh, 2015 or uh, 16 sorry yeah, those are those are some of the best memories. That 2016 year, in particular, um, w- one of my favorite years um, of my career, playing with with those guys up in Toronto and and having a, a good year and being able to experience that. I remember my early years with the with the Blue Jays, and I was kind of similar to Jose, and like I kind of started to figure things out a couple like several years into my career, where I felt like. Um, I tried to realize that, you know, I was trying to do that longevity thing too, play as long as I could take care of myself. But that 16th season was uh, pretty magical as far as how the city came alive um, for, for that team and for that playoff run and just the team we had. So uh, I know things are, are looking good and exciting now for the, for the Jays as well. So um, it'd be fun to see that city um, kind of reenact that. Yeah, it's certainly looking, trending towards postseason. You know, I think we're we're a couple minutes into the conversation. We're all friends now. I feel like I can ask you this. Little little bit of FOMO, <laughs> missing out on the bat flip. I mean, you were here before, you were here after. Uh, it's the moment everybody talks about from that kind of era of Jays. Uh, let, let's be honest, a little bit of FOMO uh, not being there for that one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can be honest about that for sure. <laughs> I think... Uh... You know, looking from the from the other side, I'm glad I got a chance to get back there and, and kind of be part of some of that. But, um, you know, just those moments being, you know, watching and being part of it on that team, but the excitement, I, it's hard to describe the adrenaline. I mean, you see the reactions of, of guys. I mean, it's just uh, sort of an out-of-body experience when something kind of that remarkable happens or memorable. Um, yeah, that excitement is, is through the roof. The stage is, is interesting in baseball, right? Because we got all these isolated events over and over and over again. It's all individual. Uh, it might be a lot of confidence based not to do the psychoanalysis again. Uh, but the stage affects those one-on-one scenarios, right? Whether it's the pitcher or the hitter. And the stage in that bat flip game was, of course, maybe the rocket, most raucous crowd you could potentially imagine. One of the craziest games that Rogers Center has ever seen. And, of course, Bautista, because of being Bautista, arose to the occasion. What was it about the stage for him that just worked? Yeah, I think I think for most players, and I I could only guess for him, is that the preparation kind of breeds the confidence. So it's all the reps that are everywhere else, um, you know, kind of behind the scenes that creates that confidence where the work is put in. Now it's kind of time. But I'm guessing in that moment that whatever that little extra focus was or whatever that little extra is that sometimes players can have, given what had happened previously in the in you know, the inning before or whatever it was. Um, uh, it just seems like maybe he wasn't going to be denied in that moment. 
Does it work on the flip side? I mean, not you uh, sort of equate what's going on with this Blue Jays season with like actual big playoff moments because uh, we're, we're not there yet. Uh, but we've been going through it all year. Runners in scoring position, Blue Jays struggling to cash in runs. I mean, on base percentage is great, but bottom three in the league and cashing when it matters the most it is. Does it work the other way for certain players, maybe certain teams where if the moment is more important, which it can be to certain degrees that it really impacts you negatively? Yeah, I think it's, you know, that that thing, we've been trying to figure that out for a long time. I don't think anybody's been able to. I think that, you know, momentum is a real thing in sports. Um, you know, success breeds confidence. You get one guy starting it, and things can kind of snowball and roll, and you all of a sudden you get on a streak or you start knocking guys in or you start shutting the door a little bit more. Like, um you know, if we knew how to quantify that and, and how to act on it, I think we would. It's just one of those things that um, it's what makes sports great, I think. Before your time here in Toronto, you had a, you had a nice run with the, with the Phillies. I know you said uh, it took you a little longer maybe than you'd like to get started. But I just wonder, you know, you uh, I, I realize none of those guys in Philly that you played with have had their number retired there. But, I mean, you played with some studs, be it Ryan Howard, Chase Utley, Jimmy Rollins. Like, do the kind of players you think of in that stratosphere and throw Batista, if you want, Edwin in there, do they share something or are they all just kind of one-on-ones? And that's what makes those special guys so special. Yeah, that's hard to say too. I mean, you got a you got a group of guys, and for the most part, they're the, the twenty five best players throughout their whole career on every team they've ever been on, right? And then, and then uh, in that group, then you have that the, another tier, and those guys fall into that next tier of, um, you know, they're able to do things more consistently and at a better rate, but than everybody else. So, and that's why they're all stars and hall of famers and. Um, you know, and doing it for a long time. So, um, yeah, uh, Jose fits right in there. Other than winning, because uh, as we all know, winning is, you know, the easiest way to create a positive environment uh, around sports. What is, what are the, the prerequisites to a good clubhouse? Hmm. So that's another tough question to answer. I think front offices have been trying to figure that out for a long time <laughs> as well. You know, a lot of, a lot of times, uh, you know, it's, I think it's the players and the player makeup and when things are going tough, who who's blaming people and who's looking within and, and trying to focus on themselves, who's willing to stand up and say something if it needs to be said, uh, whether it's private or, you know, in front of the team. Um, again, probably like a, something that hasn't been quantified yet, but those are a couple of things that come to mind. Well, it's just funny, right? Because we, we talk about it, and again, like we've talked to players about this, you know, hitting is such a big topic of conversation, but if pitching's struggling, you know, it's like, oh, what's the pitching coach saying to these guys? And coaches are there to help you. A manager is there to help shepherd the team through the season. But it, it does seem like on all the best teams we talk about, and again, like no shade at Bobby Cox, but when we think of those great Braves teams, it's not because he was managing them so well, right? It's be, we think of Smoltz and Glavin and Chipper Jones, and we can go down the list. And I don't know why that's the example I picked, but here we are. Like, it does seem like the best teams, it is the players kind of taking care of it themselves, isn't it? I think it has to be. I think, you know, something people say a lot is managers kind of, manage the players and the egos of the players, um, not necessarily their play. I mean, they're supposed to, you know, have that ability at this stage when 
you're at this level. So it's managing kind of the, the, the guys in that room and what are they like? How do they respond to different things? Is it all right to get on one guy? And it might not be all right to get on another guy because they respond differently. Um, so that's sort of, you know, I think part of a manager's uh, job there is to kind of just manage some of the egos in that room. Are, are some of those things that the Blue Jays had, the structure in place, the personalities, the manager, uh, some of the things that lured you back to Toronto? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I liked my time there, uh, loved it, and was excited to get another chance to go back. And, um, you know, one of the biggest reasons was uh, – you know, the manager and the pitching coach um, at the time, and, you know, Pete's still there, and he's, he was one of my favorite ever. And I was happy to be able to get back and work with him. Okay, I have to follow up on that. What is this Pete Walker magic pixie dust? We've been wondering for the better part of a decade here. You're a guy who's worked with him. We hear it not just from, you know, people who cover this team. We hear it from people across baseball of how highly thought of he is. What is it about Pete Walker that makes him such a good pitching coach? Man, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't that far removed from the game himself. And he was just very easy to kind of have conversations with. He didn't come across and he didn't pretend like he knew everything um, or how to fix everybody, but he'd sit and he'd, he'd take the time to have those conversations with you and, and work with you and get excited for you. And, um, and that doesn't mean he's not knowledgeable. He's very knowledgeable, but he doesn't act like he knows everything. But he's willing to to kind of take deeper dives. And, you know, there's been a lot of times where, you know, let me take a look at that and let's look into it. And we'll go out and we'll work in the bullpen and we'll change this grip and we'll change our focus. And, uh, yeah, I just, for whatever reason, you know, well, some of those reasons, we, we worked really well together. Okay. I a lot of respect and still do for him. Uh, and, and, you know, the organization definitely does. Baseball definitely does. I mean, you say he's still there. It seems like almost a bit of a surprise because it seems like it could be such a sought-after commodity uh, given what he's done for guys like Robbie Ray who won a Cy Young uh, working under Pete Walker. I, I think it's story time. I want to know about your best story uh, regarding John Gibbons and, of course, your best story uh, when you think about Jose Bautista. Oh, man, that's tough. You know, Gibby's another guy that I really appreciate and respect and was glad I got to play for. I felt like he really had the players back. Um, You know, some of the – I don't know if I can, you know, name something specific, but he he was just a guy I felt like, you know, I had several conversations where I could just go in his office or he'd even call you in, see how you're doing, a couple times struggling – you know, and that means a lot too. Like, not only when it's going good, you when it's going bad, he he's checking on you. Um, and again, that's kind of managing personalities in a clubhouse. Um, but I, I loved how kind of hard nosed he was too. I mean, I, I love when he'd go out there and get into it with some umpires, and also with the team. I mean, he could, he could be real straightforward, and I really liked that because I felt like that was something I could take and maybe everybody can't, but um, sometimes the team needs it. Um, I mean, you don't see some stuff behind the scenes with Jose too. We, you know, we've had team dinners and stuff and, you know, he takes care of that a lot. And, 
you know, but as far as a moment, it's hard to go. And again, I wasn't there for, for this one, but that the bass flip, I, you know, that'll live, live on forever. So it'd be interesting to hear what he has to say about maybe his favorite moment. But I think that would be a lot of people. Where were you for the bat flip? We did that exercise yesterday, Sharon, where we experienced what was probably the most memorable moment of at least of our our lifetimes uh, watching the Blue Jays, at least conscious lifetimes watching the Blue Jays, of course, because there was some pretty great memories in the early 90s. But do you remember where you were for the bat flip? Uh, I don't specifically. You know, we were we didn't make the playoffs. <laughs> Actually, we lost and we had a wild card. So, um we lost in the wild card game, but um, I remember just watching the highlights of that game and trying to realize like what had happened with that interference and all that kind of nonsense in the buildup. But I, I remember continuing to watch it over and over because I just looked and listened to the sound of the stadium and the crowd and just, you know, definitely, like you said earlier, some foam all there. Uh, He didn't need it, but uh, that moment certainly helped him get elevated into the level of excellence. Jose Bautista will uh, be uh, forever enshrined there on Saturday uh, with the Chicago Cubs in town. Uh, Jay, we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, Look forward to maybe doing this again uh, down the road. Uh, It was a lot of fun catching up. I appreciate it, guys. Good to catch up with you guys, too. Uh, that was our conversation yesterday with Jay Happ, former Toronto Blue Jay. And we have some breaking Batista news, by the way. Uh, Jose Bautista is going to sign a one-year con- or one-day contract. One year. That would have been... Uh, hopefully no one turned off their radio at that precise moment. Imagine? A one-day contract. He has signed a one-day contract or will live later today on the Blue Jays social so that he can retire a member of the Toronto Blue Jays before being elevated to the level of excellence. So all good things, all exciting things you know what they if you're a do? big Blue Jays and Jose Bautista fan. Like, you know how like I don't feel like they do this anymore at golf tournaments, but like obviously a staple from happy Gilmore of the, the like big check mm-hmm. and they present it. They should do, they don't big, do big checks anymore. They, I don't think so. I could not tell you the last time I saw a big check in, in person or in real life. I, I feel like say. lottery is the only place okay. you get a big check. A lot of times I feel like those people are like, do not put my face on camera. I do not want my really? family. To I know feel like they this. all get that. Okay. Uh, but big contract and have him sign it like on the field, like the, make it honestly, let's get ridiculous. Have it be the size of the flag. They bust out on Canada day <laughs> and just have him put the old John Hancock right on the bottom there. He has to like drive an ATV yeah. in order to yeah, actually they, get they the just, signature. They, down. They, they, they got golf carts cruising around down there. They just, just run the tires, on the tires through yeah. some paint and have them, have them drive Jose Bautista on the, uh, on it there. Why not? A little pomp and circumstance. Never hurt anyone. That's awesome. Good story. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, Jose Bautista deserves that. It's gla- it's uh, you know, not that there was any worry about, you know, what his affiliation would be after his career. No, he is a Blue Jay. He is as much a Blue Jay as really anyone. Uh, he made his legend here. Of course, he had his greatest moments here, and he didn't end his career here technically. Uh, but now he will with a one-day contract uh, with the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, a little worried, I was going to say, one-year contract again, because that is not happening despite... The fact that you might be able to hit a ball over the fence uh, nowadays still. Uh, let's get to something to chew on. Brought to you by Great Canadian Meats. Mm, yum, 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 yum. So now, this one I don't fully understand, okay. uh, but it is interesting. 
nonetheless. Okay, you were trying so, to wrap your head around it while we were half listening to the J.A. Happ conversation. Yeah, I mean, it, it's still like, it, it's. I, I think it needs to be critiqued just a little bit. Right. Uh, San Francisco 49ers head coach Kyle Shanahan revealed Thursday that the team had an agreement in place to lure Phillip Rivers out of retirement during last year's postseason. If you remember, they went to the NFC Championship game. They lost handedly to the Philadelphia Eagles. Brock Purdy tore his UCL, I mm-hmm. believe, in that game, which is Tommy John, mm-hmm. uh, and he's still on the road to recovery. Uh, I guess he's maybe a little ahead of schedule, and there's some confidence that he can be uh, maybe ready before he was expected this season. But nonetheless, Brock Purdy injured in that game, not available to finish that game. And of course, uh, that was kind of the difference, although it seemed like Philly had outclassed them anyway. Uh, had the 49ers advanced to the Super Bowl, there was a strong possibility that Rivers could have joined the team for the matchup against the Kansas City Chiefs. Quote uh, from Shanahan, he was prepared to. Now that stuff we talked about throughout the whole year, we would have had to seen how far how that was for the Super Bowl, but the plan uh, that was the plan for most of the of the year. So I get that. I guess they were talking to Philip Rivers, but like, okay, the headline is, hey, we wanted to bring him in the Super Bowl. I mean, and that was planned. I mean, Brock Purdy was injured in the game, and if Brock Purdy was available for the Super Bowl, he would have played in the Super Bowl. So a little confused on how immediately that happened. Like, did they reach out to him at halftime when they were losing to the Philadelphia Eagles? That I'm not really sure, but if... If there was any concern about Brock Purdy, mm-hmm. like let's say, hey, there's a little elbow issue sure. and uh, we're, we're, we're confident he can play, but there's no risk here. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you should have had him in the lineup because Josh Johnson came in and they had no chance without Brock Purdy. So to me, I think as I've thought about this, it was bad, bad, bad coworker by me. I did not engage with this conversation with you, but I will engage with it now because I've actually rounded myself into having a theory on this. Okay. Philip Rivers was not getting off his couch or stop rearing the the herd of children he has. I think he's up to nine now. He was not doing that to do anything other than to play Why not, quarterback. Why, how, much, what, how much money would you make for just showing up and carrying a clipboard for think, one Sunday? Um, yeah, it's funny. Good tie in with Philip uh, with Phil Mickelson earlier, uh, the other Phil, uh, whatever. I, let me put it this way. I feel like Philip Rivers, just a little more responsible of a financial planner. I don't feel like he's sitting there going, I need the, I don't know what's a game check for Philip. Rivers. It's a low like, bar, but it's fair. And I think that's what it is. And I think the other part of it is that the only way he was going to do it is for the legacy aspect of winning the Super Bowl and having the chance. And Philip Rivers, there's no way he was going to sign up to be the backup and carrying a clipboard and just be like, oh, go get him, Brock. Like, if he was going to come out of retirement, it was to play. So I think it was clearly a case of Shanahan keeping in touch. Like, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? Should both of our quarterbacks go full, like, Simpsons baseball team here and, like, fall into a sinkhole or get giganticism in their head? Or what happened in the NFC Championship game where neither of them can play? Then we need you. But Rivers probably said, okay, great. Like, I'm very on board with this, but not to maybe play. To play because you have no other options. So that, that, that's that is, what I think That it is. is fair. That is definitely fair. But if there was concern about Purdy and there was actual discussion about Super Bowl, because you're not talking about the Super Bowl in week 14 with Philip Rivers, right? You're not. I don't well, think. I think you're just that's a I, little presumptuous. I think you're keeping I think you're keeping tabs on Rivers. But I think this, it's, this this specifically Super Bowl plans. They made Super Bowl plans. Well, no, I think I think the plan was like you are our break glass. I think Tom Brady will have conversations with teams this year in this exact same venue. Like maybe like the Jets is the team I always go to because Rogers is old and they just made a quarterback change. But if we need you for the Super Bowl like, we'll call, well, no, it's hey, hey Tom Brady, you have no desire to go through camp and play a full season and like got all that for sure. You, I completely understand. But do you want to play football for 
eight weeks and go on a playoff run? Should our starter blow out his knee in week 12? I guarantee if you are, if you are a team with legit like title aspirations, or you look at your quarterback room, if you're not at least having that conversation internally, forget about externally, you're not doing due diligence. So that that's just what it looks like to me. And who knows, maybe rivers will still be this guy for the 49ers or for some other team this year, especially now that this story's out. If you weren't doing your due diligence before, why wouldn't you be doing it now and reaching out to the camp? Okay, so I think the disconnect here a little bit is, okay, they had a contingency plan in place for the season. It was a guy they were talking to, but like it was, this is directed like, oh, it was for the Super Bowl. They were ready for the Super Bowl. Uh, I just feel like it's oh, taken no, on a bit it, of a life form. I think of it was own. just a case of like, if they somehow won the NFC championship game with no quarterbacks available to them, <laughs> then they would have had to have signed one. Phillip they, Rivers they had would have someone been in their contacts yeah, list. Exactly. Uh, okay. I wonder if Mike Mayock ever made a contingency plan. Uh, we can ask him about that or not next, because we're going to chat with Mike Mayock, former NFL general manager and contributor to Westwood one on the fan morning show next. In-depth Blue Jays coverage with an analytical twist. Jays Talk Plus with Blake Murphy. Be sure to subscribe and download Jays Talk on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jose Bautista, officially a member of the Toronto Blue Jays. One-day contract signed today. He'll have that for his elevation to the level of excellence tomorrow. We got a beautiful guest list. Josh Donaldson, John McDonald, to talk a little bit more about Jose Bautista and his impact. But before we get to that, let's get to Mike Mayock. Talk a little NFL with Mike this morning. Uh, former NFL GM and contributor to Westwood One. Good morning, Mike. How are we doing? I'm doing great. How you guys doing today? Uh, we are doing pretty good. Exciting to watch a little football last night, albeit the preseason. But, uh, you know, we can always generate some interest if we so choose. And there was some natural, organic interest in what C.J. Stroud might look like last night. Uh, I was a little shocked to see him only get through two series. He threw a pretty bad pick. I mean, this is a guy who clearly needs reps at the uh, NFL level if he's going to be a viable starter for this team, albeit, you know, the expectations are a little low for Houston. Why didn't Stroud take uh, see more of the ball last night? Uh, I mean, basically what happens is that everybody's got a plan going into that first preseason game, how many snaps, especially for the rookies and especially for a rookie quarterback. Um, and what you're trying to do is match up the rookie quarterback with the most solid offensive line you can have and make sure you don't put him more at risk with a bunch of guys that don't know the pass protection rules yet. So I'm sure they had a plan going in and they stuck to it. Yeah, the uh, the Texans uh, many moons ago. David Carr uh, took his share of punishment uh, under under their uh, under center there, so they don't want Stroud to go through the the similar thing. You know, I wonder with somebody like yourself when you, when you're watching preseason. I mean, you know, somebody like myself or Justin here, we can watch and look for a CJ Stroud and say, okay, what has he got? But for somebody with a kind of more finely tuned eye, are you able to take anything? Or I shouldn't say, are you able to take anything out of these games? But what are you able to take? Is it team preparation? Like I understand that the skill level is obviously going to drop off as you get deeper and deeper into the game. But do you glean anything out of the way a team is prepared or something about the coaching staffs maybe watching these preseason games? I'm always intrigued by who gets uh, the primary snaps early in the game. What, what rookies are out there? Uh, what are the position battles? I mean, pick a team. I, I mean, I know you guys, 
you know, you're Buffalo centric. And if you looked at the Bills, for instance, you're, you're going, okay, who's playing left guard? Saffold's gone. Uh, Connor McGovern's probably going to get a lot of snaps. What about David Edwards? What about that rookie second round pick, you know, Torrance from Florida? So I'm always intrigued early in the preseason to see the number of snaps at question, question mark positions. Uh, let's stick with those bills. Uh, at this time last year, the hype was a little bit out of control. I mean, a lot of people, and rightfully so, were uh, excited for the bills, expecting big things from the bills. Uh, and maybe it was a bit of a surprising end to the season. There were some uh, unforeseen circumstances, but uh, yeah, fell short of expectation uh, for sure, considering where we were at again at this time last year. It feels like, you know, that is going to have a little bit of effect on the narrative and the feeling surrounding the bills, but it feels feels like the hype has died off a little bit more than it should. Where do you stand on the Bills entering the 2023 season? Well, I, I thought last year was a bit of an anomaly given the type of year they had. And, you know, if you look at the AFC, which is the more powerful conference, I think Kansas, Kansas City, Cincinnati, and Buffalo were kind of the big three, right? And they were last year. Now, Buffalo went through somewhat of an unprecedented season given – DeMar Hamlin, given the weather situations, given some other, I mean, I empathize with them because when I was with the Raiders, you know, we had the John Gruden situation in 21, Mm. followed shortly thereafter by Henry Ruggs and that unbelievably unfortunate situation with him in the auto accident, killing a woman. Um, We had that back to back. And I know how it punched a hole in our building for obvious reasons. I thought Rich Bisacci, our interim head coach, did a great job, and and we ended up rallying and making the playoffs. But it takes a lot of gas out of the tank. And I thought Buffalo, and I did the the final Buffalo game for Westwood, you know, the the loss to Cincinnati in the playoffs at home, and they looked like a team that had just run out of gas to me. I thought their offensive and defensive lines were tired. You know, Cincinnati came into that game with questions in their offensive line. Uh, And Cincinnati's a team that looked fresh, that ran the football, that protected their quarterback. So I look at last year's Buffalo season, you know, forget the expectations for a second. You couldn't in a million years have envisioned what they would have had to go through as a team. And I kind of give them, I don't want to say give them a pass, I thought they fought their asses off and played hard, but I thought they were out of gas at the end of the year. So now, you know, you try to revitalize. You go into the offseason. I thought they did a nice job with the offensive line. I already mentioned Connor McGovern and David Edwards. Uh, Roger Saffold didn't play well last year. You know, I think there's an upgraded guard. I I think the big kid from Florida is intriguing. Uh, So I like the fact that they fortified the offensive line. Uh, I think Tredavious White was coming off an ACL a year ago, and I don't think he played as well as he typically does. So I think you're going to see Tredavious White play at his normally high level. Uh, Von Miller's a little bit of a question mark coming off the ACL. So what do they do? They sign Leonard Floyd. I mean, I give Brandon Bean a ton of credit. Uh, I think they're upgraded. I, I think Taylor Rapp, by the way, is an, you know, you talk to me about what, what's intriguing, what do you look for. How are they going to use him? He's a really interesting chess piece. So from a person, I'm a formal GM, you know, a former GM. So I look at it from kind of from a personnel perspective. I think, did they lose some guys like 
you know, Edmonds and Singletary. Yeah, they did. But I, I thought Brandon did a really nice job. Uh, I think the roster keeps them in that top three grouping. And I think they'll be revitalized now that all those issues from last year are behind them. So I'm excited to see Buffalo play this year. And I think they're clearly one of the top three teams in the AFC. Fan morning show, Brent Cutting, Justin Cuthbert talking to Mike Mayock there. And yeah, you, you know, it's funny you mentioned Bean. We, we actually had him on the show. It was either yesterday or the day before. And that's a guy who sounds supremely confident about uh, the machine he's built up there. And, and he, he should, rightfully so. And yeah, you mentioned the Miller thing, a bit of a question mark. But the other part about it is that, you know, they've got the most important thing taken care of. And that's having a guy in Josh Allen who, who can kind of lead you to the promised land. You know, this is a bit of a Bills question, but it's more kind of a philosophical one across football. When you have a quarterback, like Josh Allen again you want to put the ball in his hands you want him making plays but the Bills uh, over the past handful of seasons really have shied away from the run game a little bit you know I'm not asking everyone to turn into the Titans there's only one uh, Derrick Henry and even they throw it a fair a fair amount but like how do NFL teams have to balance the idea of you know having a quarterback and we understand what the league is today and putting the ball in their hands and letting them win you games but you also do need to have some semblance of a running game just to kind of keep defenses honest how how do you think uh, teams are looking at that question in 2023? Philosophically, I look at it as it's a pass-first league. There's only five, six, seven franchise quarterbacks in this league, and, and Buffalo happens to have one of them. So you're going to throw the football. The way I look at the run game is uh, in terms of efficiency. How efficient is your run game? What are you averaging per carry? How often are you running the ball? Can you run the ball late in the game when you've got a lead in that four-minute zone? Those are the questions I look at with the run game, and I think it's intriguing what Buffalo's done. I mean, Singletary was a good back, uh, and, he, and he didn't get hurt, but he did put the ball on the ground. I think he had 13, 14, 15 fumbles in his, his four years there. Um, Josh Allen put the ball on the ground last year. Josh Allen threw interceptions last year. I think the single most important thing for that team this year is to take care of the football better, both at the quarterback position where it starts, and then you look at the running backs they picked up. Damian Harris and Latavius Murray are both bigger, stronger backs, and both have a history of taking care of the football. So, you know, when you combine them with James Cook, I think you're looking at what they're hoping is a really efficient run game close games out in the fourth quarter. Don't put all the pressure on Josh, both in the, in, in the scramble game and the planned quarterback run game. Take some of that pressure off of him. Take some of those hits away from him. And I think that's what they're trying to do with these bigger, stronger backs that take care of the football. You mentioned that there were maybe six, seven truly, truly elite quarterbacks in this league, guys that uh, there are no questions surrounding. Uh, when you look around the league, I guess Jalen Hurts was able to elevate in that tier, in some people's opinions, uh, last year. But if you had a candidate this year, someone who is going to go from, I wouldn't say mediocrity to that elite tier, but someone who can get to that elite tier this season, is there someone or a quarterback signal caller that you have uh, circled? Well, I, I think... There are several different conversations, and I live in Philadelphia. So all, I, it, what's amazing is that a year ago in Philly, all the conversation was, is Jalen Hurts our guy? Is he going to be able to elevate to a position, to a level, where he can help us get to the promised land? And not only did they get to the Super Bowl, but Jalen Hurts established himself as one of the premier quarterbacks in the league. He took a huge, huge step. 
Um, I think you look in San Francisco, Brock Purdy, freaking seventh-round pick. The season he had was an anomaly, or can he do it? Well, what about the injury? Where Where is Brock Purdy right now? That's an intriguing conversation, especially given that they've got Trey Lance and Sam Darnold, former first-round picks, right behind them. Uh, I look at Trevor Lawrence. He took a big step last year in Jacksonville. You know, at what level? Where Where is he going to level off? Is he going to be a franchise guy, or was last season, again, an anomaly? So I think he can go around the league and he can pick. What's, what's Tua going to be? Tua's got injury issues. Um, you know, I, well, where I'm intrigued, and I think this AFC North is a real conversation. You know, everybody talks about the Bengals. But Lamar Jackson, I guarantee you, nobody wants to play Baltimore this year. They augmented their wide receiver core. They're loaded at wide out. They took a first-round pick. I mean, Baltimore's got Odell Beckham. Bateman was a former first-round pick. They draft Zay Flowers. They signed Nelson Aguilar. I mean, you don't want to play the Baltimore Ravens. And the same thing with Cleveland now. Deshaun Watson. Is Deshaun Watson going to be the guy he was in Houston? given all the stuff he's gone through the last couple of years. So we could sit here and talk for hours about the quarterbacks in the NFL, but I I know one thing is that if you don't have a franchise quarterback, you're just a day closer to getting fired. Is Deshaun Watson the biggest variable in the NFL this year? Like, obviously, guys can make incremental improvements uh, and they can make a big difference. Uh, But it seems like Deshaun Watson can either be that guy he was or totally awful and completely, uh, you know, uh, behind his days of being an elite level guy. I mean, the roster there looks really impressive in Cleveland. If he is that elite level guy, they can they can certainly do something. But it just seems like uh, Deshaun Watson is the NFL's biggest unknown at this moment. Yeah, I don't think there's any way that he's going to be a below-average quarterback. I mean, and, and, and as a matter of fact, I think worst-case scenario for him, he's an above-average quarterback. Uh, the question is, can he get back to being an elite-level quarterback? And um, I'm a believer in Kevin Stefanski. I'm a believer in their, their GM, uh, Andrew Berry. Um, I think that with the additions of Elijah Moore, who I think is an explosive guy they traded for with the Jets, um, with all the off-the-field stuff, most importantly behind him right now, over a year to get acclimated in Cleveland, part of that locker room, uh, I think you're going to see the Deshaun Watson. And, and I remember him. <laughs> I got this vision in my head from uh, when I was with the Raiders playing at Houston, and he made a play that a human being can't make to beat us late in the fourth quarter. I mean, this is a special talent, and I expect to see that talent at a high level this year. Yeah, I think uh, the talent is uh, is not questionable. It's uh, it's definitely been other things that have uh, that have uh, led them astray thus far. But uh, we'll see what it looks like for the Browns. And yeah, honestly, even like even uh, looking at what you're seeing at a Steelers camp, seems like some people are a little bullish on Kenny Pickett. So it could be uh, four for four for quarterbacks in that division. I don't know if you saw the saw the report that came out, but basically that the 49ers had been keeping touch with Philip Rivers late into last season. And there's a possibility maybe they would have brought him in for the Super Bowl if the if if their injury situation would have allowed them to get there. But I'm not going to ask about that situation specifically, but just the, the idea of a quarterback, be it Rivers, you know, Tom Brady is a name we might hear this year. 
Do you think it'd be possible for somebody, even somebody whose brain is as elite as Rivers or Brady is, to kind of join up with the team in, I don't know, let's say a quarterback goes down in week 12 and one of those a, a team calls one of those guys, how hard would it be for them to get up to speed? Like, is that something that's really kind of possible at the NFL? It's, a, it's an intriguing question. And um, I think the other guy you'd throw in there is probably Matt Ryan. Um, right. But I know all three of those guys, Brady, Ryan, um, and Phillip. And I think of the three, you know, Phillip is the most removed, I think. He's coaching a high school group. He's, he's invested. Uh, Phillip Rivers just – I don't know what he's doing physically, uh, but mentally he's, he's a hundred percent a football guy, you know, Brady's probably cause he just played last year and Matt Ryan played last year. They're, they're both logical. And I would never rule out either of those two guys for a stretch run and a playoff team. I think Matt, Matt Ryan's actively put it out there. Like, Hey, I'm staying ready. Uh, and you never, Tom Brady, I think is the wild card. You just, I'm guessing he's throwing the football. He's staying in shape. I'm, I'm, you know, I I just think he's a wild card and uh, you never know what, what he may or may not do. So I mentioned that this time last year, everyone was talking about Buffalo and what the expectations were for the bills. Finally, their time. And there was a lot of excitement in this market. And, uh, I guess on the flip side, because they're somewhat connected, the Chiefs were, uh, you know, people were throwing some dirt on the Chiefs. Uh, Tyreek Hill was saying two was a better or more accurate passer, I think was the, uh, the more accurate way to put it, uh, than Patrick Mahomes. But the innovation from Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes continued. It didn't matter that they lost some talent. They won the Super Bowl anyway, and they continue to progress, it seems, from season to season. Mahomes gets better. Reid gets better. The team gets better, or at least it seems... Should we expect that again? Is it realistic to expect the Super Bowl champion Chiefs to continue to evolve, innovate, and even improve on what they were last season? I, in a simple word, yes. I, I think it's it's for real. And it, it's interesting because, again, I told you I'm from Philly, and at halftime of the Super Bowl, the Eagles looked pretty dominant. And I, I remember saying to my wife, look, you know, Casey's got Andy Reid. And Patrick Mahomes, this is going to be a football game, and it wouldn't surprise me if Casey comes back and wins. And um, to me, it's a testament to Andy Reid and that entire organization. And, you know, the key to it, of course, is Patrick Mahomes. Not only did he take the contract to to help them uh, to be able to sign more players, but, you know, you know, that quarterback series that's out there right now, they have fun at practice. I've watched them in training camp years ago. Andy Reid is different. Um, he keeps that entire team energized. Patrick Mahomes is different and special. Travis Kelsey is different and special. I mean, I think they're going to continue to evolve. I think Andy and his GM, Brett Beach, are tied at the hip. I think they have a blast. I think they get energized every year by going to chase the Lombardi trophy. I would expect them to play at a high level again and be one of those three teams that's in, that's in the divisional playoffs and, and chasing that Super Bowl. We, we always talk about quarterbacks, rightfully so, as the thing you need to, if you want to win a Super Bowl in this league, you need a great one. They're kind of a floor setter for organizations, but head coaches can be that too. And Sean Payton, I think it's pretty fair to say, is is one of those guys. What do you expect from him in uh, Denver now that he's back in, in the NFL? 
Yeah, I don't expect five wins from that team. I, I a think few more, team, eh? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that team's got some talent. Uh, when I was with the Raiders, we played them every year, and I watched a bunch of their tape, and there's some talent there. And um, I think the quarterback-head coach relationship is always critical. I mean, I look at it from my experience. When I was with the Raiders and Gruden and uh, Derek Carr, Derek Carr played some of the best football of his career. And part of that was Greg Olson, the coordinator, Richie Bisaccia when he took over. But that relationship is critical. And I think the Sean Payton, with, with the background and the gravitas that he brings to Denver, I think you're going to see the best version of Russell Wilson that you're going to see this year. And I think you're going to see 100% buy-in. And I think they're going to look and act like a completely different football team this year. Uh, the noise emanating out of Green Bay has uh, dissipated uh, pretty pretty uh, swiftly since Aaron Rodgers uh, was eventually traded to the New York Jets. Uh, of course, Jordan Love is the next in line, and he's going to take over, and he's going to have the chance to uh, make his name in the in the long line of uh, impressive quarterbacks. Uh, not even the longest line, just the steady uh, uh, production that comes from that position over the last uh, three decades uh, from Green Bay. Uh, is there... Is there not enough talk about Jordan Love? Is it the appropriate amount of talk? Like, what is the level of belief that not that he's going to be able to pick up where uh, Favre and Rodgers left off, but he's going to prove himself as the next in line and a guy who can eventually get to that level? Yeah, I think you start with the fact that he he was a first-round pick in 2020. And I remember doing his tape. I, I watched hours and hours of his tape, and he's a really talented kid, size, uh, quick release, uh, ball comes out, strong arm, and an athlete. I think the physical traits of a first-round NFL quarterback are there. Now, beyond that, I can't tell you what to expect because I haven't been in Green Bay watching him practice and, and in his meetings. Obviously, Green Bay feels good enough about him that uh, they, the, they let the, uh, the all-time you know, Aaron Rodgers guy go. Um, but I don't know what level Jordan's going to play at. I, I know he's got the physical traits to play at a high level. I think it's going to be really intriguing to see a guy that got drafted in 2020. Here it is, 2023. What's he going to be? And I think early on in the season, it, it, it's going to be a bit of an acclimation point. And I think by the time we get to the second half of the season, we'll find out whether or not he's the quarterback of the future in Green Bay. Yeah, it may be completely different in many ways, but at least one big difference with Rodgers uh, eventually taking the throne away from Favre was that he, like, he was ready. Like you knew and, and there was confidence and it had to happen sooner than later. I mean, Rodgers could have been around for a couple more years and you could have had Jordan Love continue to learn, but uh, he's being thrust into it maybe earlier uh, uh, than uh, they wanted to or ever imagined or they should. Uh, but Jordan Love will get that opportunity this year uh, for Green Bay. Hey, this was a great opportunity chatting with you today, uh, Mike. It was a lot of fun. Hopefully we can do it again down the road. Hope you guys have a great day. Thank you. That's Mike Mayock, former NFL GM and contributor now for Westwood One. Yeah, I don't I don't remember off the top of my head how long Aaron Rodgers sat around and waited. It's a couple of years. 
Would it be a year about the and same? a half? Because it was twenty twenty something along those lines. I feel yeah. like it was more than. I feel like it was more than two. Well, there's only I, we'll you have only have four. That. You only have four, and then the option on a rookie deal, right? So I it couldn't have been so, much yeah. more than two. You would have had to figure. Something I guess out it was billed as taking forever yeah, when it was. really it wasn't uh, that extreme. But yeah, Jordan Love uh, in the same position. It's just that it doesn't feel like the confidence is there that it was, or, or as it was for Rogers, who was definitely ready uh, for that position at the time. Let's give away our last. McDonald's giveaway uh, as of August 1 for a limited time. Canadians can get their hands on the newest McFlurry flavor from McDonald's Canada, the Squishmallows McFlurry. The new McFlurry features smooth vanilla, soft serve blended with pink, popping candy, and delicious blueberry-flavored syrup. To celebrate this latest addition to the McFlurry lineup, we will be giving away $100 in McDonald's gift cards. To enter, text today's code word BLENDED. Blended is the code word to 59590. That is blended. Again, that's blended to 59590. Text it in now for your chance to win $100 in McDonald's gift cards. McDonald's. Gotta love it. It's the I'm best. loving it. You might even say. You might. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think they do anymore, but I would. So there you go. Did they, told, is it still on? I don't know. I'm just saying. It was once. The Golden Arch. I don't think anybody forever. else can have it. It is. I got com- confirmation from my guy who knows everything about everything in the world, Daniele. <laughs> he books this amazing show with, uh, you know, just like uh, all your favorite Blue Jays on it. He gets in the take chamber himself last night for three hours. He was here when I got here in the morning. Guy just grinds. And he knows everything about everything. So it, it shout is, out, Daniele. It is relentless from Daniele. And it is a relentless list of Blue Jays guests in the 8 a.m. hour. We are going to have Josh Donaldson after the break. We will have John McDonald before we break again, and then we will tee up the Cubs and the Blue Jays this weekend with Jesse Rogers of ESPN. It's Josh Donaldson, Donaldson, and John McDonald next on the Fan Morning Show.